And uh, my name is Bill Gorman. I serve here at the Brookside campus as the campus pastor, and, uh, and I love it. And it's so uh, great to be able to serve such a wonderful congregation. And uh, as we begin to look at God's Word this morning, um, I'd love to just pause and ask for his help in understanding it. So let's pause and pray, and then we'll, we'll look at this text a little bit more that Dave read for us. Uh, Father in heaven, we're so thankful that you have given us a new, a new year, and uh, I love the fresh start of a new year and the beauty even of a, of a fresh day uh, here this morning. And I pray that as we um, are embarking on this new series in the book of Hebrews, as we're going to be spending time here, um, that you would help us uh, to be uh, open to what you have to say. Um, I pray that we would uh, be able to hear you clearly. So I ask now as we look more closely at this passage, um, that your spirit would be at work enlivening um, your word, that we might see Jesus more clearly. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, when I uh, was engaged in dating Rachel, there were really a few times uh, when, honestly, I, I thought I wouldn't live uh, to see our wedding day, uh, literally. Um, and let me explain. When, when Rachel and I were engaged in particular, um, every day, just about after work, I would drive uh, to her parents' house, which is where she was living at the time, and then we would spend the whole evening together planning the wedding, just hanging out, uh, spending time together. And, and despite my best efforts, I would always end up staying late than I had planned on. So, you know, we'd have one more conversation, one more kiss, one more embrace, and then one more conversation, one more hug, and then finally, you know, it's like two hours after I'd planned to leave, we fi- finally get in my car and start driving home. And it would, like I said, always much later than I planned. And Rachel's parents live out 187th in Holmes, way out past Lock Lloyd Country Club, if you're headed south uh, on Holmes there. And at the time, I was living downtown at 10th and Broadway. And so I always had this 45-minute drive home after I was already out very late. And the first, you know, 30 to 35 minutes of this drive uh, were always fine. Um, but it was that last 10 minutes, I could just never stay awake. That kind of highway hypnosis would come in, and you're staring, and I had the windows down, the radio is turned up, anything I could do to stay awake. But inevitably, a few times, I would start drifting, either into the other lane or onto the shoulder, and then you'd get those rumble strips that kind of jerk you back to full consciousness. Um, and I don't know how many uh, times that God preserved my life in those last 10 minutes of the drive home uh, downtown. But the thing is, is when we're not paying attention, we start to drift. And, and we've all had this experience before when we're driving, I think, right? Whether it's sleepiness um, or doing something with your phone or uh, trying to find something in the purse or try to get the pacifier back in the baby's mouth. That when you're not paying attention, you start to drift. And, and not paying attention and drifting when you're driving can have deadly consequences, right? Um, but it isn't only true of driving, This happens in relationships too, right? Couples drift, friends drift. We slowly get less and less time together and we have less conversation and we become a little bit more closed and then before you know it, you hardly seem to know the other person anymore. And this happens in our lifestyles too, right? We, we start spending a little bit more here, a little bit more there, and, then, and the next thing we know, the, the credit card is, is maxed out. Or, or you miss a few workouts one week, and then a few the next week, and then the next thing you know, it's been months since you've been at the gym. Or, or it's just that extra cookie here or there. Uh, maybe I'll have another soda here. And then 20 pounds later, what happened? Um, I, I think it's with New Year's resolutions even now. We're going great these first two weeks, but then you start to get a little bit lax next week, and then the next month a little more lax, and by you know, July you don't even remember what the resolutions were that you made. See, in all these areas, drifting can be deadly. 
And the hard truth is that we drift by default. We drift by default. Every one of us is like a car whose alignment is out of whack, and so you're not constantly holding the wheel. We just begin to drift. And this is true, like I said, in just about every area of our life, that you're either drifting or you're drawing near. You're either drifting or you're drawing near. And, And there's no place where the stakes are higher than what many people refer to as our spiritual life. And, and it's pretty rare for a person to just walk into church one day or walk out of church one day and just say, I am done with this faith thing. Usually, we just start to drift. We just start to drift. It's not one conscious choice if I'm leaving. It's just one little choice after one little choice after one little choice. The passion begins to fade. Sin in your life that you used to fight, temptation that you used to fight against becomes commonplace. The faith that you had begins to grow weak. And and chances are, if you're a Christian sitting here this morning, you either have been in a place of drifting, you're drifting right now, or chances are in time not too far from now, you'll start drifting. Because we drift by default. It's just who we are now. We're, we're sort of like Ben and Sarah. If you remember, if you were with us last week, you missed last week, we imagined this couple, Ben and Sarah, who had grown up Jewish and, and believed and come to believe in Jesus, but after several years began to drift. And, and now they were considering going back to their old ways. They were considering giving up on Jesus. And it was the early 60s, the 60s AD, first century, and we don't know exactly uh, who they were um, or what they were like, or whether they just got disillusioned or bored, but they began to go off track. And, and then one Sunday, Ben and Sarah, in the first century, they show up at their little congregation, probably somewhere outside of Rome, and they hear a sermon. And the sermon that they heard is what we know of the book of Hebrews. And last week we talked about the first three verses of this book. It's kind of set the whole stage for the book. And the message of Hebrews, it's really simple. The message of Hebrews is that you can't do better than Jesus. If you want just a one phrase that sums up the whole book is that you can't do better than Jesus. And we use this equation to help us remember this. It's that Jesus is greater than. And no matter what you put into that blank, the equation is always true that Jesus is greater than whatever you can put in that blank. And we actually made some little cards that just have that equation on it. And if you didn't get one of those last week, um, there's some on the name tag table in the back. You can stick that on your mirror in your Bible just to remind you. This is the simple summary of the book of Hebrews. Jesus is greater than. And the equation's always true, no matter what you put in the blank. You see, Hebrews was written for drifters. And this morning, we're going to ask three questions. Why do we drift? Why is drifting so serious? And then how can we keep from drifting? So, So why do we drift? Why is it so serious? And then how can we keep from drifting? And here's the big thing to remember this morning, that we're either drifting or we're drawing near. We're either drifting or we're drawing near. So why do we drift? That's our first question. Well, we drift because we are drifters. Now, the text that David read for us is actually in the middle of a larger chunk of of Scripture that we're going to be looking at this morning. We're actually going to go all the way back to chapter 1, verse 5 this morning. But in chapter 2, verse 1, where David started reading for us, Jesus is compared, uh, has been being compared to the angels. That's what he's been compared to all through chapter 1. And now, that, all that stuff about the angels, it's a little bit confusing. That's why we're going to start here in chapter 2. We're going to get to the angels in just a moment. But chapter 2, verse 1, this is our key verse this morning. It says, Therefore we must pay closer attention 
to what we have heard, lest we drift away. We must pay closer attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away from it. And this phrase, pay closer attention, or pay close attention, it's actually really kind of too soft uh, in English. In the original language, it's a single word, and it means kind of in a furious obsession with. To be, pay close attention is to be furiously obsessed with, to be constantly thinking of, to be completely devoted to. Paying attention like your life depends on it. And the author of Hebrews says that if we're not furiously paying attention to the message of the gospel that we've heard, that we're going to drift. And we drift because that's who we are. Like that car with its alignment out, we begin to drift away if we're not constantly holding on to the wheel. But you see, it wasn't always that way. Back in the Garden, back in the garden of Eden before sin entered the world, we didn't drift. But the thing is that, that we chose, we continue to choose to replace God with our broken desires when only God can ultimately satisfy. You see, we reverse the equation and we say that, that our career or our desires for sex or money or power or acceptance or approval are greater than God. And so now in this quest for satisfaction, we never stop moving. We're always searching. We're always striving, always drifting. One of my old professors from uh, seminary, Dr. Don Carson, wrote these words, and I want to share them with you this morning. He says, one of the most striking evidences of human nature lies in the universal propensity for downward drift. People do not drift towards holiness. Apart from grace-driven effort, people do not gravitate toward godliness, prayer, obedience to scripture, faith, and delight in the Lord. He says, we drift towards compromise and call it tolerance. We drift towards disobedience and call it freedom. We drift towards superstition and call it faith. We cherish the indiscipline of lost self-control and call it relaxation. We slouch toward prayerlessness and delude ourselves into thinking we have escaped legalism. We slide toward godlessness and convince ourselves that we have been liberated. Ouch. Busted. I mean, that's what I said to myself as I read that this week. I mean, this, I, I've been there, and, and I am there in some parts of my life right now. We see this in the natural world too, don't we? It's the, it's the second law of thermodynamics that, that when something is, that is ordered left to itself, it begins to move to disorder. Uh, it, it happens in the world around us. It happens in relationships. It, it happens here. Drift happens. Okay, but, but why is drift so serious? You know, Bill, you're, you're talking about drift. I know you're saying it's serious, but it's still kind of early on a Sunday morning here. Uh, help me. Why, should, why does this really matter? Is drifting really that serious? Well, well drifting is serious for three reasons. Uh, one, because of who we're drifting from. Uh, two, because of what we're drifting toward. And three, because how we received the message that we're drifting from. So this is what makes, life or de- uh, makes drift such a life or death issue. So, so who are we drifting from? Remember in chapter 2, verse 1, began with a therefore. And that therefore is pointing back to chapter 1, verses 5 through 14 of this chapter. And as the author has been making this case, in this long section, the one thing that he keeps saying over and over and over again is that Jesus is better than the angels. He's better than anything, even the angels. That's what he keeps telling them. And he's the one that we're drifting from. 
Now, this is where we have to pause for a moment and say, now, angels, they seem important, um, but they're also a little weird, right? We don't talk a lot about angels, and, and when we think of angels, you know, it's usually some kind of like cheesy scene of like a Lifetime movie or, 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 or a cartoon. Um, so, so what are angels, and, and what does the Bible actually teach about them? Well, first, the Bible teaches that angels are real, that they are something that exists, that God has created them. Um, but they're not what we think uh, about typically. So um, angels are not human beings. We don't become angels when we die. So, you know, you're, you don't die and become an angel. That's not where they come from. Um, they're also not sort of uh, beings that are just waiting around for a bell to ring so they can get their wings at last. Um, and the Bible teaches that angels were created by God and that they exist for three reasons. Um, they exist to worship God. We see this in chapter 1, verse 6. They exist to serve and protect God's people. We see this in verse 7 and verse 14. And three, and this is really the focus of this section, um, they exist to be God's messengers, especially in the Old Testament. This is what we see in in Hebrews chapter 2, verse 2. In fact, the word angel, both uh, the Greek word and the Hebrew word, it means messenger. Angels are, are primarily messengers. And you even think about when they show up in Scripture, they're delivering God's message to his people. So, so angels are great. They're phenomenal. They're some of God's most amazing creations. But the author's point is, is that Jesus is still way better. So take a look. If you have your Bible open, just kind of look up on the page a little bit or turn back a page, depending. And look at the beginning of chapter 1. Look at, kind of move all the way up to verse 5. And starting in verse 5, the author gives us um, a number of, of uh, Old Testament quotations. He gives us seven, in fact to prove that Jesus is better than the angels. He wants to demonstrate, he wants to show us from the Old Testament that Jesus is better than the angels. And clearly, um, this author, this preacher of Hebrews, knows the Old Testament well. And, and if you're familiar with the Old Testament, and he believes in it, he believes that it's the authoritative word of God. And, and you are, might be familiar with some of these passages that he quotes, especially if you're following along in the reading plan, the open here reading plan. If you haven't picked up one of these bookmarks, you can grab one in the back. Um, gives you something to read each day from the Bible. Um, and we read a couple of these passages this week. Psalm 2, Psalm 110. Um, we read some pieces of this. And if you're familiar with some of those passages... Um, you might actually be a little bit confused for, for two reasons. One, if you are following along with this plan, you may be wondering, like my wife was yesterday, why are we jumping around so much in here? And, and part of it is so that we can get a full, um, all these texts on the, on the bookmark help us understand the book of Hebrews better. So it's intentional. It's not a mistake that you're one day reading in uh, Acts and then in the Old Testament. We're doing that on purpose. But you also may be confused because if you know these texts that you've read, you may say, aren't these passages about David? King David, they're not about Jesus, right? I mean, this is the Old Testament. So how can this preacher claim that these passages from the Psalms are, are, are talking about Jesus? Well, this is actually just how amazing the Bible is, um, how tightly it's written, how God has woven the story together, how beautifully it fits together. Uh, and sometimes what's happening here is called typology. It's when Christians, looking back on the Old Testament, can point to Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment the final, fullest expression of what is promised in the Old Testament. So sure, these words did mean David back then. But you see, Jesus is the true and better David. And that's why we call this series True and Better. The author of Hebrews does this consistently. And, and if you listen to enough of the messages that we preach here at Christ's Community, we try to do the same thing. It's the beauty of the Bible. 
that if you're looking for Jesus, every page whispers his name. You see glimpses of him everywhere. So essentially, when we read these passages, we can say, yes, of course these applied to David, but their ultimate fulfillment is Jesus. Hebrews 1.5 says this, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or I will be a father to him, and he will be a son. You see, only Jesus is God's son. Angels don't get that title. That's the, author, the point the author's making here, is that angels are not the son of God. They don't get that title. And now the author here, it's important to recognize that the author believes that Jesus has always existed, that he is God himself. He isn't saying that Jesus somehow came into being um, or that he became God's son. I mean, that would have been true of David, but not of Jesus the author, what is he is doing? He's alluding to the high point of Jesus' sonship. He was always the son, but through his victory on the cross, he entered into his inheritance as a son. But that's not because the, the only reason that Jesus is better. The next two quotes in verses 6 and 7 point out that the role of angels is to worship Jesus. Jesus has got to be better than them because the angels worship him. One of the primary jobs of angels that we see in verses 6 and 7 is to worship God. And they worship the Son, which implies that Jesus himself is God, very God of God that we talked about. Light of light, God from God, true God of true God. And, and then if this hasn't been enough, the author moves on to two more Old Testament quotations And and he just says it outright. If you look at verse 8, he says, Of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. And then in verse 10, You, O Lord, laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, and the heavens are the work of your hands. And then again in verse 12, You are the same, and your years will have no end. You see, it doesn't get any clearer than this. These passages could never have just been about David, right? They could have never been just about David. But they are about Jesus. He is God, the eternal king, the unchanging creator. And the final quote in verse 13, And to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool under your feet. In this, the author is declaring that Jesus is the victor, the winner of death, over death and evil. And now he's seated at the right hand of the Father. So yes, Jesus is better than the angels. He's vastly superior to them. And he is the one who we're in danger of drifting from. He's the one we're in danger of drifting from. And that's why drifting is so serious. If you lose Jesus, you lose everything. When I was uh, growing up, I was involved in in scouting. I was a a Boy Scout, made it all the way uh, to Eagle Scout. I loved scouting, enjoyed it so much. And one of the things that that we learned in scouting was was map reading and and orienteering. This is kind of really before we even had the GPSs that you carry around in the woods. So we actually learned to read maps and and work with compasses. And it's still a great skill. It's fun to do um, even now, how to plot things out on a map. And one of the things that, if you've ever taken an orienteering course, if you've ever been scouting, that one of the things they always drill into you in orienteering is that if even you make a small error in your bearing, and in your calculation, those small errors turn into big errors really quickly. Because if your calculation of your bearing is off a little bit at the beginning, and you're only going a short distance, it doesn't matter that much, right? So if you're only going a few hundred yards, you might be off of your target maybe a few feet. But if you're talking going four or five miles, that little error at the beginning will send you off on a trajectory, and you will miss your destination completely. You see, as human beings, if if we only live for 70, 80, 90 years, if that's as long as we lived, 
a little drifting off course might not be that big of a deal. But Christians believe that people exist forever. And if we exist forever, then drifting just a few degrees, extended endlessly forward in time, is absolutely devastating. See, when we drift from Jesus, we drift toward death. The whole point of what the author is saying is that we cannot drift because we'll miss it. We'll only drift towards death. Look back at chapter 2, verse 1. The author says, Therefore we must pay closer attention. We must be furiously obsessed to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? And this is the whole point that the author was making with the angels. This is why he spent so much time unpacking this angels thing. The author is using a brilliant rhetorical device that was really popular in that time period. Um, It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. And And so here's what he's saying. He says, the angels, they brought an important message from God. Uh, to the people of the Old Testament. And, but when the people ignored that message, they received judgment for their rebellion. They went into exile. There was the destruction of temple, war, famine, disease, all that. And he's saying, if that's what happened to them when they ignored the message that came from angels, and, and we just saw how amazing angels are, but they're nothing compared to Jesus. He's saying, if that's what happened to them when they rejected the message that came from angels, what do you think is going to happen if we ignore the message from Jesus? The message of God himself in bodily form. I mean, look at it this way. If, if someone were to send you a package via, via U, UPS, and the UPS guy shows up at your door, he knocks, and you take one look at the package, and you look at what the, the name on the package, and you say, I'm not friends with that person anymore. Send it back to her. Return to sender. Now, when your ex-friend gets that package back, it it will be an insult, right, that you return the package. But how much more insulting when the next day that friend actually shows up at your door and tries to hand you the same package herself with, with love in her eyes, pleading for reconciliation, and then you slam the door in her face. You see, that's what Jesus has done. He's come to us in bodily form. If we slam the door in his face, we do so to our own peril. Listen to these words from theologian Miroslav Volf. Volf says, God will judge not because God gives people what they deserve, but because some people refuse to receive what no one deserves, namely his grace. If evildoers experience God's terror, it will not be because they have done evil, but because they have resisted to the end the powerful lure of the open arms of a crucified Messiah. Let me read that last part again. If evildoers experience God's terror, it will not be because they have done evil, but because they have resisted to the end the powerful lure of the open arms of the crucified Messiah. Jesus says in John chapter 3 that people are condemned because they have not believed in the Son of God. And finally, drifting is dangerous because of how the good news came to us. Notice verses 3 and 4. It says, How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared to us at first by the Lord. It was attested to us by those who heard. While God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed by his will. It's almost like a court case, this idea of bearing witness. 
Do you see it? All three members of the Trinity are here. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And they're all proclaiming the good news, offering evidence that Jesus is better. And the early eyewitnesses there, they're saying, yes, we've seen him. Christianity, again, we talked about this last week. Christianity didn't start with people talking about what they just believed about this guy, Jesus. No, they started by reporting what they had seen and heard. Jesus, they'd seen this guy raised from the dead. They actually saw Jesus. And so, yes, 2,000 years later, we're here, but the survival and and the flourishing of the church throughout the 2,000 years of, of, of opposition only adds to the evidence of the original witnesses to Jesus. You see, this message has come to us from Jesus. It's been attested by the Father and the Spirit. It's been passed on to us by eyewitnesses, and we drift from this message at our own peril. You see, you're either drifting where you're drawing near. And every one of us here, it knows what it's like to drift. If you're just kind of exploring Jesus, if you're, if you're not sure who he is yet, you, you're doing the same thing. Either you're drifting or you're drawing near. You, we, there's no neutral place. Or if you're here this morning, you consider yourself a Christian. Every one of us is at risk. Some of us are drifting away right now. Some of us might drift away forever. Hebrews is a powerful book, and it gives some very sober warnings. It's written to drifters, people who are lost at sea, dehydrated, and who will soon be devoured. The author is is trying so hard to reach us, almost to kind of grab us by the shoulders and shake us and say, look, you're either drifting or you're drawing near. You, You can't just coast in the middle somewhere. So how do we keep from drifting? Well, he's already said it in this passage, hasn't he? He says, therefore, we must pay close attention to what we've heard, lest we drift away. We have to pay close attention. We must be furiously obsessed with the message of the gospel. So what does that look like? Well, first, in order to keep from drifting, we need to determine where you want to go. Most of us simply drift because we have no idea where we're supposed to be headed. And the only way that we can really figure out where we're supposed to go is is this book. This is God's revelation of himself to us. It's how he's revealed his plan for us. So pay careful attention to it. Read it, study, talk with it, about it with others. Listen to it taught in the church. Grab one of those open here bookmarks. That gives you a plan to be able to begin reading this book. Constantly be soaking your thought, your, your mind in the story of this book. And if you are a Christian but you don't spend much time in this book, drift is going to be inevitable. That same professor, uh, Dr. Carson, um, I remember saying to us as students one time, he, he says, my question to someone always when they say, I'm not really, uh, I don't feel close to Christ or, or I feel like I'm, I've, I'm kind of distant, he would always just ask the question, when did you stop reading your Bible? It's always stuck with me. When did you stop reading your Bible? This book gives us the pathway. And sometimes it means reading it even when it seems dull, even when it seems dry, keep pushing in, keep pressing in. Trust that God will meet you there. So make a plan. Read this book. Second, let someone else lead. If you don't want to drift away, you have to let someone else lead. You see, it's not simply enough to, lead, to read these words and to say that you believe them. Paying attention means actually obeying them, actually following the one who's written this book. You've got to let someone else take the lead. 
And some of us assume that if we're good Christians that we are sort of drift-proof. That it, but if you really sit down and actually think through who's in charge of your life, what would you discover? Ask yourself, when, when I'm reading this book and I come across something I don't like, uh, this book's view of, of generosity or, or sexuality or of forgiveness, when I come across something here that I don't like, who wins the argument? <laughs> Do I win or does this win? You see, if you begin to compromise, you will begin to drift. And you have to ask the question, am I really the best person to be in charge of my life? I've used this illustration a lot, but I think it's so helpful. It's like, which you do you want to be in charge of your life? Do you want the 13-year-old you? The 22-year-old you? Because every time we, we get kind of a decade beyond and we look back at who we were 10 years ago, I was like, I don't want that person running my life today. So what makes us think that we ever reach a place where we're really qualified to be in charge of our own lives? Let someone else lead. And finally, to prevent drift, you always have to bring someone along with you. Bring a buddy. <laughs> Another scouting story. When I was, went to summer camp uh, as a scout, you always had to have a buddy if you were going to go swimming in the lake, right? So the, the water's all murky, and you can't, if someone's drowning, there's no way you're going to see them. I mean, the, you can't see an inch down on the water. So you always had to have a buddy. And there was the, the big buddy board out there on the beach, and so you hung up your little tag. I don't know if you had these at summer camp. You hang up your tag, or you and your buddy. And so, you know, if you get out and your tag's there and your buddy's still there, you've got to wait, where's my buddy? Is he at the bottom of the lake? Um, you, gotta, you always had to have your buddy tag. And then the, the lifeguards would always stop. You know, every 10 or 15 minutes, they'd stop and do a buddy check. And you have to grab your buddy's hand and, and lift up in the air. So, okay, we got, we're, we're there. Okay, no one's drowned yet. Actually, when we would do these at the first day of camp, maybe they just did this to scare us, but they actually make us as scouts do lost diver drills, like prepare to do body recoveries. So, like we'd all like walk in a line, like shuffling, trying to find a, like a milk thing full of sand. So I don't know if they would have actually made us look for someone who had drowned, but maybe that was just a, a sobriety thing. Like, look, you know, if, if, this, if, if you don't have your buddy, you're going to be shuffling along the sand looking for a body in the bottom of the lake here. Um, I didn't have that part in my notes, but... Uh, <laughs> But you've got to bring someone with you because drifting spiritually, drifting spiritually is a lot more dangerous than swimming in a murky lake. It's a lot more serious. And here's the thing, nine times out of ten, you can't tell when you're drifting. We just can't. We don't see it. So you have to have a buddy along with you who can point it out. I call this kind of lifestyle creep. Things that used to be unacceptable in your life are somehow now okay. And when did that happen? It wasn't a conscious choice, right? It just, it just slowly happened over time. And without an outside voice, someone who's lovingly speaking to your life and, and say, look, wait, wait, you've drifted off course here. We may just keep on drifting away forever. So if you don't want to drift, then you can't live this life well. And this is why community groups are so important. Find someone who can be a buddy with you on this walk, this journey. Just ask them the question. You say, you've known me for a while. You know, you know my life. Do you see any area where I'm drifting? And be willing to actually hear what they have to say. So are you drifting or are you drawing near? The good news of the gospel is that the gospel is for drifters. It is a message for people who know that left, that they know left to themselves that they will never stay on course. 
The gospel isn't a message to crush us. It's a message that gives life. It is a message for people like you and me who know that they are a car whose alignment is out of track and who know left to themselves will drift off course. You see, the angels brought a message that in the end could only bring condemnation, but Jesus brought a message. He is the message that can rescue us, who can set us free, who can live for us, who can bring life to us. He is the one who is able to rescue us. You see, Jesus didn't just drift away. Jesus didn't drift away at all, but he was sent away from the Father. He was cast out to death and darkness for you so that you might be brought near and be made whole, complete, good, free, and fully satisfied in the only one who can ever fully satisfy you, God himself. And one of the many ways that we draw near is in the celebration of communion in the Lord's Supper. 